earlier, this is Palm Sunday, and he brought up a great question. He said, how could a group of people be singing Jesus' praises in one week and in the next week be screaming out, crucify him? How could that possibly be happening? Let's take a look this morning at the gospel presentations of, the, of, of Palm Sunday in two different passages, Mark and John. And what I want you to do, I'll read this out loud. You read it as I'm silently as I'm reading it out loud. And I want you to look for the similarities and the differences as these two authors are sharing the story of what happened on Palm Sunday. Okay, let's look at this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, which, by the way, is just outside. It's kind of one of the major suburbs outside of Jerusalem at this time, okay? So it's about a quarter to a half day's walk outside of Jerusalem. At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. By the way, people debate back and forth, but there's a lot of consensus of thinking that Jesus worked this out ahead of time with the owner of the colt so that he knew what was happening. Because note, it doesn't say if the owner asks what's going on, but if other people are asking what's going on, this is what you should tell them. So possibly Jesus took some time to plan ahead. We're not exactly sure, but we'll see why that fits in a little bit later. Starting at verse 4, they went away, and they found a colt tied at the door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches so that that they had cut down from the fields. And those that went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, you wouldn't know it from just reading this, but those Hosannas are coming actually from Psalms called the Hillel Psalms that were typically cried out by pilgrims coming into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. So this wasn't necessarily unusual, what they were saying, but they're directing this towards Jesus. In verse 11, it says, And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when they had looked around at everything, when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went back to Bethany with the twelve. Now, it's interesting as you're reading this to ask, who are the various people who are crying out, Hosanna to Jesus? Who are these people? Most likely, the significant number of these people were were pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for Passover, and the chances are very good that these were country people, the majority of whom Jesus had been ministering to in Galilee and those outward parts. A vast amount of his ministry life was done outside of Jerusalem, and there's a good chance that these people were people who had been ministered to him by him. They had seen their friends healed. They had heard him teach. And they knew something was up. They knew something was going on. And so they took the the normal cries of the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem, and they, they, they placed them on Jesus. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, if this was a a loud, raucous party, in a sense, a loud parade, 
Why wouldn't the Romans be concerned? Why wouldn't the Romans be be, uh, upset that, that something was happening in the city that they were out of control of? You have to understand that this is not an unusual situation with pilgrims coming in during Passover, Jerusalem. And when they see Jerusalem, they cry out these Hallel Psalms. And the unusual aspect of this was that Jesus is coming in with the crowd on this donkey, and they're spreading these garments in front of him, and they're spreading these, these leafy branches in front of him. And many in the crowd are directing their adulation towards Jesus with a sense of anticipation. Let's take a look for a moment at John chapter 12, recording the same story, but from a little bit different perspective. He begins by talking about this large crowd of Jews that learned that Jesus was there. Jesus was where? He was in Bethany and Bethpage. That's the place he, just a short while earlier, had raised Lazarus from the dead. And they'd heard about these things, and these Jews were coming out to see Jesus. Now, you wouldn't be able to pick up on this, but the term crowd of the Jews in the Gospel of John the term the Jews often was used about people who were at least somewhat uh, skeptical of Jesus, if not antagonistic. And so this is a group of people who are coming out to kind of see what's happening. They don't know what's going on with this Jesus. They were from Jerusalem themselves, so they hadn't been around him that much, and they're coming out to see what's going on with this guy. They learned that Jesus was there. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now get the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see what's happening? Now people from Jerusalem are coming out to see what's going on with Jesus. They, they learn about him raising Lazarus from the dead. They're attracted to what's going on with him. They're beginning to believe in him. And the chief priests, the authorities... The, the, the leaders of the formal uh, religion of the Jews were, were getting nervous because even the people who were supporting them now seemed to be going over to Jesus. And uh, so they wanted to put Lazarus to death as well as Jesus. Okay? Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd, now this is a different group, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, again, that's most likely the pilgrims from out in the countryside. So they they took branches of palm trees, and they went to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey. This is the shorthand version of all the stuff that Mark had recorded about Jesus sending out the disciples and getting the donkey. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt, Zechariah 9.9 from the Old Testament. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. That's important for us to remember. His disciples didn't really grasp what was going on here. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and been done done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. This was probably another group of people. This is the crowd that had been around Lazarus and Bethpage and Bethany and seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. This crowd, when they um, uh, continued to bear witness to him, so they're going around telling people about Jesus and what he's doing. 
The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was so that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing? Look, the world's going after him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we look at these passages, as we reflect on these passages, as we think about these various groups of people and they're reacting to Jesus and what he was doing. I pray, Father in heaven, that you would open our eyes and give us hearts to understand. And then apply these things to our lives as well, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we look at Mark, we look at John, we see these things happening. And as I was reflecting upon what Jeremy was saying earlier, that people were crying out, Hosanna, and then they were crying out, crucify him. I couldn't help but stop and think about myself, just like Jeremy did. Now, I know you probably find this is hard to believe. You know, I'm a pastor, and I've been in this gig for a while. But um, occasionally, not as often as it used to be, but my wife and I have arguments. Yeah, I know it's hard to believe, but uh, it really takes place. And as I explore these arguments that we have and these fights that we have, and as I think back upon the ones that we've had over the years, I mean, we've had some real doozies. We, we, we've had some that we stayed up till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, but um, as I stop and think about that, I say, why? What's going on with these arguments? And one of, the th- one of the books that has given me deeper insight into why we've had these arguments is a book that uh, is not a Christian book. It's actually entitled Getting to Yes, Negotiating Agreement Without Giving In. This book is actually the first book that came out in a a thing called the Harvard Negotiation Project, which started numbers of years ago. And if if you talk to a lawyer, they probably know about this because lots of law schools use the materials from the Harvard Negotiation Project to help people understand how to interact and how to negotiate. Well, when I read this book, I began to get insights into why we had fights in my family. And one of the key insights I gained was this. If you just get caught up in your own interests, in the things that you want to promote, and you're not willing to take the time to understand the interests of the other person, the other group, if you don't take the time to get outside of your own interests and get into the interests of others, then they're going to not feel understood and they're going to feel alienated. And according to this book, you're not going to get anywhere in your negotiations. Now, that sounds simple, but it's really difficult to do. But if you get this principle, husbands and wives, you're going to start getting an idea of how you can work through your conflicts by taking the time to get outside of your own interests and listen to the interests of others. If you're a parent and you want to begin to understand your kids better, get outside of your own interests and take the time to understand what's going on inside of them. If you're a student, try to discover what the interests of your professor is in a class, what they're trying to get across, what they really want to see happen, and gear your learning to their interests. It's a great principle. Understand interests, not just your own, but get outside of your own interests and get into the interests of others. So you say to me, okay, Bob, I get that, but what do you really mean by this term interests? Well, let's go back to the 17th century for a minute to a guy named Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a book 
years ago called The Freedom of the Will. And in that book, he makes this claim that the human will always chooses according to its strongest inclination at the moment. So when I use the term for you, interest, that is your interest in understanding the interests of others, what I'm saying is understand the inclinations, the strongest desires, the heart burdens of the other person. Understand what their interests are. And if you do that, you'll begin to be able to have conversation with them, to engage with them, because you're getting outside of your own interests and getting into the interests of the other person. Again, that sounds simple, but it gives us an insight into ourselves and into Palm Sunday. Because if you're like me, you have a hard time getting outside of your own interests. Your own interests drive you. After all, they are the strongest inclinations of our hearts. And what we see on Palm Sunday are groups of people, we could call them interest groups, different interest groups interacting with and being exposed to Jesus and responding to Jesus. And if we can understand their interests, we can come to some conclusions on why they had the experience of praising one Sunday and crying out, crucify him the next Sunday. So let's look for a moment at these various interest groups. The first interest groups I'd like to call the curious. We saw that among the Jews of Jerusalem and others who came out to see what was going on with Jesus, what was happening. They probably didn't understand very much about him. As a matter of fact, they probably just understood him by reputation. They'd heard, maybe this guy's a healer, maybe he's a teacher. Let's go out and check him out. It's kind of a celebrity attitude. Their interest is to see signs. And you see this different places in the scriptures, but people coming to Jesus and wanting to see him do signs. Let's see if he'll do a miracle. Let's see if he'll do something spectacular and exciting. Even Herod, when they brought Jesus to Herod during his time of, of, of the Holy Week, of, his, of, of him moving towards the crucifixion, even Herod's first desire was ex- being excited to see Jesus because he wanted to see signs. And so the curious were interested in Jesus, not because of what he was teaching or to, come to seek to understand what, what he was doing in his ministry, but they were interested in, in the superficial They wanted him to be a celebrity. They wanted to see what he would be doing, something that would be exciting. The curious. A second group of people could be called confused followers. I use the term confused followers, and lots of people could fit into this. The disciples fit into this category. Remember it said in John that they didn't really understand what was going on. We also see the people that he had ministered to in the countryside who are coming in and praising him but they don't really understand what he's about. Other people who were seeing Lazarus raised from the dead, and they were coming and following, but they really didn't understand the depth of what was taking place. Confused followers, what are their interests? Well, I just use this term, the Lord's anointed. All they really understand is God's up to something here. Something is taking place, and Jesus is in the center of it, Some of them thought of him in terms... Remember when Jesus asked Peter and the disciples, who do men say that I am? 
They say, well, some think you're a great prophet. Some think you're an amazing teacher. Some even think that you are John the Baptist raised from the dead. There's all kinds of ideas about who Jesus is. Some perhaps had inklings of maybe this is a person who's going to bring in David's kingdom. Some, especially disciples, maybe even were thinking in terms of, is this the Messiah? Is this the one that God has chosen to bring in his kingdom and to establish his kingdom? And yet, they were confused. They weren't certain about what was happening. A third group of people, you've already noticed them as well, we could call the antagonists. They are symbolized by the rulers of the Jews. However, there are other people who were followers of those rulers, who were orthodox, who wanted to maintain the stability of the religion. The antagonists were against Jesus. Why? Because he was doing two things. First, he was, he was undermining the tradition of the day. Their interpretation of the scriptures were being challenged by the way Jesus was doing things. Even though he said, not one iota of the scriptures will be taken away by what I do, they still thought that he was not orthodox. There was also a concern about Jesus taking away their power. Both their formal power, because they were the formal authorities, And remember, if you read in Mark and other places, you'll read again and again that Jesus demonstrated an authority that people had never seen before. And so they were concerned that their their formal authority was being undermined. People were looking to Jesus rather than to them. They were also concerned about the Romans and what the Romans might do if this person creates an insurrection. And they might come in and take away all of the, uh, the, the, the freedom that they had to exercise their religion. They were also concerned that Jesus was taking away their relational power. Do you know that there's more power in relationships than there is in formal authority? And Jesus was getting the hearts of the people. If you look carefully at the scriptures, you'll find that the Jewish leaders were trying to get Jesus for a long time, but most of the time they couldn't do anything about it because the people were around and they were afraid of the people. And so we see these three groups, the the curious, the confused followers, the antagonists. There's one other group that we need to represent, obviously, and that's Jesus himself. If you look at what Jesus is doing, you see that he's in control You see that he knows what he is about. And you you just get the sense that Jesus is doing something that is beyond the understanding of these other groups. As a matter of fact, we could say his interest was doing the Father's will. He said in John chapter 6, verse 38, I didn't come to do my own thing. I came to do the will of my Father. What we're going to discover is they, the other groups didn't really understand that or take the time to understand Jesus' interests. This is the next thing we need to look at. Not only what groups were there, but what their interests were driving them to do. What I would suggest to you is that when we are so caught up in our own interests, our own concerns, what we try to do is make other people fit into our molds. We try to make them fit into what we want and what we like. We try to create them into our own image 
and make them something that they are not. Some examples of this is um, seeing others through the lens of our own interests. Uh, Don't squeeze me into your mold. Don't try to make me into your image. What do I mean by that? This can happen in relationships, but I, I often see this taking place between kids and their parents. And maybe you've felt this way at some time in your life. You know, you start getting to age 12, 15, whatever, 25. Some of us have experienced contexts where we felt like our parents are trying to make us something we don't want to be. Because our parents have interests. They want us to do something. They want us to be something. Rare is the parent who says to their children, I'm excited about who you're becoming, and I just want to support you in who you're becoming. But most of us have been in some kind of relationship where we feel like we can't really move on because that person is not letting us be ourselves. They're squeezing us into their mold of who they think we should be. And that is what I think we're seeing on Palm Sunday. Groups of these people who are interpreting Jesus, who he is and what he is doing, through their own interests. So let's look at this just for a moment. The curious, like I said before, they want Jesus to be an entertainer. They want him to be the latest celebrity. Flocks were coming to him. Thousands of people at one time were fed by Jesus out of a few loaves and a few fish. And you know what Jesus made comment about later on? He said, you know, they're not interested in coming to me to hear what I'm saying or what I'm doing. They're interested because I fed them. This is the curious. Those who just want to see what's happening. What's the latest thing that's going on? What's the most exciting thing that's happening? It's the paparazzi running around. It's, it's, it's the coolest and newest thing. And you know as well as I do that when that cool thing passes by, it's easy to turn on them in a dime. Most likely, a lot of these people who were curious ended up crying out, crucify him. Because he didn't perform the way they wanted him to perform. Stop and think about the comedian who's bombing in a coffee shop. What do people do? They start booing him. They start throwing things at him. They call him to get off the stage. That's what happens when you're not being entertained. How about the interests of the confused followers? Now, this is a very difficult, a big group to talk about, and it's, it's really probably impossible or improbable for me to come up with one basic uh, anticipation or, or mold that they were trying to squeeze Jesus into. But I'd like to suggest that for many of these people, they were making Jesus into a divine um, uh, What's the word I came up with later? Uh, 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 a machine, uh, a machine, a, um, a vending machine. They wanted Jesus, in God's name, to take care of their needs. Some of them wanted David's kingdom to come. And so they anticipated that Jesus would somehow bring in this spectacular kingdom to reestablish the glory of David's kingdom. Lots of people speculate that this is Judas's attitude. That, that he was a person who wanted to see a political solution to all the problems. We don't know that for certain. But they want, 
people, these people were trying to squeeze Jesus into a mold. Um, sometimes it wasn't a political mold. Sometimes it was a mold of meeting my needs. Remember, John and his brother came to Jesus and said, we want you to do whatever, whatever we ask you to do for us. And Jesus' response was kind of, oh, really? What do you want me to do? Well, we want you to give us the right and the left-hand sides of your kingdom. We want to sit at your throne next to you in your kingdom. And you know, I find that I often treat God like this, that often my prayers are, God, I want you to do whatever I ask you to do for me. Lord, you haven't come through in this area of my health. And I'm, I'm pretty ticked off at you because you're not taking care of me and my health. I've worked with people over the years who've basically come and said, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much ready to give up on God because he hasn't given me a, a spouse yet. And I'm really ticked off at him because he hasn't met my needs. Another person who said, you know, I haven't gotten the job I've expected to get. Whatever the needs are, whatever the desires are, we try to fit Jesus into our molds of what our expectations of who God is and what he ought to be doing for us. And for many of the curious and the confused, they were disappointed because they were trying to squeeze Jesus into that mold. Now, the antagonists were trying to squeeze Jesus into a mold of being their opponent. It is fascinating to look at how Jesus responds to those who are antagonistic against him. He was constantly inviting them into dialogue. He was constantly inviting them into discussion. He was telling them stories. He was trying to engage with them. And their response was stiff-arming him. We already have defined you, Jesus. We already have fit you into the mold of our antagonist. You're trying to change our religion. You're trying to take away our power. And we're going to deal with you because of that. Let's pause for a minute. As we look at the various ways that these different groups approach Jesus and the molds that they were trying to squeeze him into according to their interests, I think it's appropriate for us to take a moment to ask ourselves two questions. What are the interests which are really driving our hearts this morning? You know, for some of us, the interest was to stay in bed. (laughs) But at least we can get a free breakfast here. (laughs) I understand that. What are the interests that are driving us this morning? To be with certain people? To be able to hang out together? What are the interests that are driving you? The second question is just as simple. How do I try to fit Jesus into my interests? Am I disappointed with God? Am I frustrated and angry? Am I confused or upset? Is God not fulfilling my needs? How do I try to squeeze Jesus into my interests? Here's the thing I want us to notice this morning. Jesus doesn't fit well into our interests. Jesus was disappointing 
the disciples and the curious followers. He never really clearly laid out for them exactly what he was doing, except for the disciples. Three times he told, told the disciples, I am going to be taken by the chief priests, by the Pharisees. I'm going to be whipped. I'm going to be scourged, beaten, crucified, and I'm going to rise again. But they didn't get it. Why didn't they get it? At least one reason is because they were too busy trying to squeeze Jesus into their mold to understand what his bigger purpose was. What I discover is I often am trying to squeeze Jesus into my molds. And by doing so, I'm missing the big picture of what God's all about. What was Jesus doing? The first thing we see he was doing, he was fulfilling the scriptures. Remember reading from John where it said in Zechariah, Behold, I'm coming. Behold, your king is coming. Your king is coming and he is riding on a donkey. Jesus is conscientiously fulfilling the scriptures. And again and again and again, Jesus was making sure that what he was doing was congruent with the Old Testament scriptures. Remember when the disciples were walking with him on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, those two disciples? And they said, we're so disappointed. Why? Because we anticipated, we hoped that Jesus was going to be the answer to all of our issues. He was going to be the Messiah. We were squeezing him into our mold. And Jesus said, listen to the scriptures. And he says, beginning with Moses and going from Moses all the way through the Psalms and the prophets, Jesus described for them how he was fulfilling the Old Testament. He was opening up their eyes to see, away from their interests, the bigger picture of what God was doing in the world. He was seeking to fulfill the scriptures in their fullness. Secondly, he was seeking to please the Father. His eyes were on the Father in heaven and to do what the Father's will was, not just to fulfill the desires of the people around him. Oh, we could get into this about how he didn't continue to heal everyone and didn't fulfill all the expectations that people had because he was here to do the Father's will. And what was that will in particular? His will was to, the Father's will was for him to be the Passover lamb who would take away the sins of the world. By the way, this is the good news this morning. Even when we are seeking to fit Jesus into our mold, Jesus refuses to do that, but he agrees to be our Passover lamb. And he accepts us in our brokenness and accepts us even when we're trying to manipulate him and fit him into our expectations and interests. When we're trying to superimpose our interests on him, he still accepts us and loves us and still went to the cross to die for us and still says, you're my children and I accept you. Now help me to reshape your heart and reshape your minds. Jesus has us in a process. And if this morning you don't understand his death and his resurrection for you, I encourage you to ponder this week this Passover week, this week of his death, celebration of his going to the cross and resurrection, as his taking the initiative to love you while you are just caught up in your interests. This is the desire of Jesus. 
a much bigger picture and a much fuller presentation than the disciples, the curious, or even the antagonists could begin to believe and understand. And this is something which we have to grasp about Jesus, that his purposes are bigger than ours, and his interests are broader than ours, and he invites us into seeing things from God's point of view. There's a great story in the Old Testament which gives us a taste of this. It's in Joshua. Joshua had just brought the children of Israel over the Jordan River. Moses was dead, and they were preparing to go into the Promised Land. And just before they were getting ready to attack Jericho, the night before, Jesus is confronted, I'm not Jesus, Joshua is confronted by a strange person whom he had never met before. It says in Joshua 5, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up, he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Now Joshua is a general, and he understands what it means when he's facing somebody with a drawn sword. So he goes up to him and he says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Now it's a logical statement, it's a logical question. It's either us or them. But this soldier says, neither. I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and I have now come. And Joshua faced, fell down on the ground in reverence before him. Lots of scholars believe that this commander of the Lord's army is actually Jesus in a prefigured presentation to Joshua. Whether that's the case or not, we know this. God's, represent, God's representative before Joshua comes to him and says, you are caught up right now in what's sitting before you in Jericho. You can only think in terms of people who, who are for you or against you. I want you to know that I'm neither for you nor against you. I am for the Lord. And what Joshua discovered is what the disciples were going to discover, what the curious would discover if their hearts were open to it, even the antagonists would discover if their minds would be open to it, that God's purposes go beyond us or them. God's purposes are huge. For his purposes, his eternal purposes. And our lives can be seen from a different perspective if we see them from the perspective of God's eternal purposes. That doesn't mean we're going to be able to always put two and two together. As a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah once said that God's purposes are strange and alien. He couldn't figure them out. And often we're going to feel that way. But our calling is to seek his face and to seek to learn to see things from his point of view. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Romans, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remake you so that your whole attitude of mind is changed. What I think a key message for Palm Sunday is this. Are we going to let the world and our interests seek to squeeze Jesus into a mold that he will not fit into? Or are we opening our hearts and our minds to the bigger picture of what God is doing, which is represented next week as Jesus goes to the cross and rises from the dead and blows the minds of all these different interest groups with something they never would have anticipated? God seeking to remake our minds from being squeezed into the world 
to seeing things from his point of view. There's a great story in the book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia. In the, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you have King Cas- Prince Caspian. And Prince Caspian and his friends have landed on this deserted island. And on this deserted island, they discover a, a pool of water, which will turn anything it touches into gold. And for the first time in, in the stories of the Narnia stories, Edmund, who is one of the kings, one of the children who became one of the kings in Narnia, Edmund and Prince Caspian come to threaten to, to kill one another because they both want to own this pool of water that will change things into gold. And they literally come to the point of getting ready to draw swords against one another. And just as they're getting ready to draw swords, a huge majestic lion that's robed in light appears in the distance before them. And suddenly they are overtaken by this view of Aslan, the Christ figure. And when they see Aslan, they come to their senses. And Prince Caspian says, I've been making a fool of myself. You see, in the light of the glory and the beauty of the majestic one, all their other interests, even the driving interest of immeasurable wealth, falls out of existence. And what we're called to on Palm Sunday is to see how often we get caught up in our own interests. And Aslan himself in Jesus is coming to us and saying, Look beyond your interests and see me and let the beauty and the majesty of my glory show you a whole different perspective on life. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to give us this new perspective even this week. Father in heaven, we pray that we see Jesus for who he really is. We pray that this week we would begin to understand his interests in his death, in his resurrection, in his calling upon our lives. And we pray, Father in heaven, that you would reshape our minds and our perspectives and our interests as we see those of Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen.